Thank you, worship team. Feel like you're filled with the Spirit, leading us in worship today. Good job, brother. Rookie. Even Jason. <laughs> Good job. Thanks, God. <laughs> we are in Luke 5, continuing in our series today. Luke 5. As you're turning, those of you who have been praying for a great man in Washington, your prayers have been answered. Our very own Kenny Houston was in Washington this week, not running for office, but he is a great fellow. If you don't know Kenny, he is our uh, church representative in Central Asia. He works in Central Asia on behalf of our uh, church full-time, planting churches in an area where churches don't often exist. So it's great to have him in the States this weekend, and I heard he was coming, I was reminded of the last time I went to Central Asia to uh, hang out with him and encourage him in his faith, and he took me to uh, a unique uh, artisan shop. It was actually built into a cave in a town. A lot of things in that uh, town were built into caves, but specifically I remember going down into this cave, and it was just a hollowed out area, and you, you, you kind of stepped in, and there were beautiful vases and artifacts and all kinds of works of art that a potter had made there. And he, he had there his wheel and his flame and he had everything right in front of you. He would uh, throw some clay and he would actually make you a kind of made-to-order vase. And it was beautiful because I'm not an artiste in any way, but I was fascinated to see this guy take a, a messed up lump of clay and throw it on the wheel and then, you know, he'd spin it and whenever he wanted to put a design, he would uh, hold a stick out, and the wheel would just spin it, and it would make the design as he moved the stick. And I was just fascinated at his ability to mold and create. And it struck me this week as I was thinking about that, this is what Jesus is doing as you open your Bible and read through Luke 5 and the following chapters. He is coming, and he is molding creation. He's reshaping creation. Uh, he's fixing what is broken, what is lumpy, and he's reminding us through his remolding there that all creation is one day going to be such that God can look on it again and say, it is good, just like in the beginning. And that's where we'll see Jesus today, like a small child getting out of a bathtub and wandering off to their bedroom, dripping uh, drops of water all throughout the carpet. That's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's walking around. He's dripping the glory of heaven as he recreates this world. Theologian B.B. Warfield said it better like this. He said, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were, built, were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. Author Jared Wilson also writes, Jesus carried around with him the growing rift between this world and that one. As he walked, his elbows traced both air and the ether, stretching the limits of creation, the heavenly gravity pressing in at his movement. Jesus strained the capacity of this world with his very presence. It's like the world's bridges were too small, in other words, for the king of the universe. And we should not be surprised that as the seams split, some of his glory through. And last week we saw this glory as we read through at the beginning of chapter 5, the calling of Peter. And if you remember, Jesus was able to make fish where there were no fish, right? He caught fish in the waters where there were 
no fish. This week, we're going to see in Luke 5, two different miracles stacked on top of each other. First, one involving the healing of a leper, the cleansing of a leper, and there we will see corruption cleansed in the leper story. And then, as he heals a paralytic, we will see the forgiveness of sins. So that's going to be the main idea here over the sermon. In the ministry of Jesus, we see corruption cleansed and forgiveness of sins. Corruption cleansed and forgiveness of sins. What I want to do is just read through the text here, then we'll try to dive into the story and see what we can make of it. So let's begin here in Luke 5. Hopefully you found it on your phone or your device or old-fashioned paper Bible. Luke 5, 12 through 16. Let me read it. And while he, Jesus, while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and the great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places, and he would pray. And sometimes when we read stories like this, it's good just to jump in and imagine that you were actually there witnessing the event. So imagine with me if you, you were there. You were there the day that Jesus called Peter on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, the breeze blowing, there's salt in the air, sand beneath your feet. And it's a big crowd there. They're bumping you around, so much so you think you may have a, a bruise from a blind man that pushed past you to get close to Jesus. And you were standing there watching and Jesus climbed into the boat with Peter. And they went out a little way. And you'll never forget, you've never seen that many fish in one place as when Jesus said, pull up the net. And Peter caught so many fish that you were laughing with your friends because Peter was on the boat just kind of keep it from tipping because one side was completely fished down. And you won't forget that soon. And when Jesus came back to the shore, you remember making a decision. You know what? I'm going to follow this guy around. I've got a few days. And I've never seen anyone quite like him. So I'm going to keep my eye on this guy. I'm going to follow him. And sure enough, later in the week, he's not hard to find because there's always a crowd going with him, right? And you walk right into the middle of the city, and you hear the bustling sounds. You can hear and smell the sheep going by. And there's Jesus. And this time you're able to make your way through the crowd, and you get right up next to him. You kind of can lean in as he's teaching and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And now right when he gives this story about a house on a solid foundation, you're thinking about what that means. And all of a sudden you hear a cry that goes out. Someone says, hey, look, there's Jacob. And you look up. Jacob. Man, you knew Jacob growing up. You came up with him. But you haven't seen him in years because years ago he contracted a, a skin disease. One of the many skin diseases that falls under the larger heading of leprosy. And man, when you get leprosy, it's over. You're outside the city, right? So he had to immediately leave his family, leave his kids, leave his job, and move out to the tent in the wilderness. And nobody's heard from Jacob since. Could that really be Jacob? And as you look through the crowd, you see the crowd kind of parting 
like Moses in the sea, as someone's moving forward. Actually, before you actually see him, you hear him. You hear him yelling out, unclean! It is the voice of Jacob, unclean! And he's coming through yelling like a leper would. And then, and then the smell hits you. It's a bad, it's a bad smell, the smell of putrid flesh. You, you cover it up because he doesn't smell good at all. And you, you see him. And indeed it is your old friend Jacob. But it's a shell of the man you once knew. This guy is, is bent over. His clothes are all raggedy. You can even see the tears in his clothes. He's got some open sores that are actually oozing with pus. It's not a pretty sight. His hair is all matted and mangled and it's hanging down. And he's, he's slumped over. And like lepers have to do, he was covering his face as he was coming forward, unclean, unclean. And then, then he stops. You're right here with Jesus. And he stops about 10 feet away. And you're thankful for that. Usually when you greet a man in your culture, you give him a big hug and maybe a kiss on both cheeks. But not the leper. He keeps his distance and you know it's appropriate. And even as he is coming forward and he kneels down, you hear him mumbling. And he's hard to hear. It sounds like, mm, 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 mm. You're like, what's he saying? And you lean in a little closer and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And as you instinctively begin to kind of reel backwards from this whole situation, you see Jesus moving in. He's moving closer. And he reaches out. And he actually touches him. He reaches out his hand. He's got surprisingly strong calloused hands for a teacher. He puts his hand right on the shoulder of Jacob. And you hold your breath. Because legally the rules of engagement with lepers are really clear. You don't come near. There's no talking. There's no touching. This is a big deal. The whole point is isolation. And then you have a selfish thought. As you're watching this whole thing, you're thinking, man, I touched Jesus and he's touching the leper. Well, I have to go get holy water and be cleansed of the situation. Then you kind of shake off your, your selfishness and you begin to listen to the man, continue to ask, Lord, if you will, if you will, if you will. You're thinking, what do you mean, if he will? He will not. Lepers aren't cleansed. It's been 800 years in this region since Elisha cleansed the leper. It just doesn't happen. I'm sorry, old friend Jacob, but your destiny is set, and it's outside the town. He will not heal you. And in that moment, you hear Jesus leaning forward, and he says, I will be clean. And in an instant, like a butterfly coming from a cocoon, Jacob is changed. He stands up straight. His eyes are now clear. The sores are healed instantly, on his body, there's still an odor lingering in the air, but there, from him himself, there's a freshness emanating from here that's wonderful, that speaks of life restored. And everybody's a bustle now. It's a, it's, it's a crazy scene, and you hear Jesus saying something like, let's keep this quiet, let's keep this quiet now, and everybody's pushing again, and uh, you think you might have another bruise here. You've been jostled around so much. And finally, Jesus says, go see the priest. You go see the priest. And Jesus turns and he meanders away. And there goes Jacob, a leper cleansed, going happily to meet his fate with the priest. And what are we to make when we see these stories? When we actually get into these stories, what are we to make of this? 
Well, one thing to keep in mind when you read a story like this is that it's coming from a context of a much bigger story, a much bigger narrative that casts throughout the whole Bible. Right From the moment Adam walked away from God in the garden and said, I'm going to do things my way, creation, including people, according to the Bible, are stained. They're broken. They're defiled, in a sense. And all throughout the Bible, we see this hope that one day it will not be. Things that are defiled might be cleansed. For instance, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40 talked about the cleansing of creation when he said, every valley shall one day be lifted up and every mountain made low. Uneven ground will be made level. The rough places will be a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. It's actually that text two chapters earlier in Luke that John the Baptist had quoted when he saw Jesus. He quoted Isaiah 40 because when he saw Jesus, he thought, ah, restoration, right? Corruption will be cleansed finally in Jesus. And don't forget in Chapter 4 in Luke, Jesus read Isaiah 61, saying the the poor will now have good news. The captives are going to be set free. The blind are going to see again, and the mourners are going to receive comfort. All about this creation will be reformed into something for God's purposes. It'll be cleansed of the stain of Adam's sin, and the footprints of Satan will be sweeped right off of people and the rest of creation in Jesus is just the man to do it. He's the man for the job. And what I want to point out is a couple of ways he shines as he's doing this new creative type of work. Now think about it. There's one thing that sets a leper apart from all the other people that you see Jesus healing in the, the book of Luke is going to be this, this concept of isolation, right? A blind man, even though he's blind, he still has family. A widow, she still has Neighbors, even the paralytic, we'll see, has a lot of friends. Later in the book of Luke, you'll see a man who's passed away, and he's still surrounded by mourners and loved ones who are carrying him along, but not the leper. The leper is outside the community. The leper symbolizes isolation, loneliness, this idea of being stuck by yourself. And when Jesus comes in, He cleanses corrupted creation in such a way that he brings man to God and he bridges the gap. And he now makes possible intimate community between God and between man. So we see that here in the story. That's the first thing I want to urge you to from this text today. The first call from the text is for you to trust that when Christ comes for you, like he came for this leper, And he cleanses you in such a way that God is now near you. You are communing with the creator of the world himself. He has the ability to remove our shame. Most of us doubt that. In our heart of hearts, we, we tend to doubt that we've been made clean enough. But see how the leper, he stumbles for bleeding sores and all. And, and Jesus still cleanses him. You are no longer an outcast. You're brought into community with God. It's just hard to believe. Uh, Tommy Nelson once said, when are we going to wake up and realize that Jesus' record in such things is like 70 million and zero? Every time he sets out to cleanse somebody, he wins. Not like your favorite sports team. Jesus always wins when he goes to cleanse somebody, and he has cleansed you if you turn to him in faith and repentance. He has removed 
all of your shame by his initiation. Songwriter Chip Taylor uh, tried to get a hold of this concept and through a metaphor of uh, God coming into the home of his heart. And he paints a picture of someone coming into the home of his soul and redecorating everything and creating intimate community. Listen to the words he says here. Talking to God, he says, Welcome to this heart of mine I've buried under prideful vines, grown to hide the mess I've made inside of me. Come decorate, Lord. Open up the creaking door and walk upon the dusty floor. Scrape away the guilty stains until no sin or shame remain. Spread your love upon the walls and occupy the empty halls until the man I am is faded. No more doors are barricaded. Come inside this heart of mine. It's not my own. Make it home. Come and take this heart and make it all your own. Welcome home. Hear the call of communion between God and man made possible by the offering of Jesus, which cleanses us and brings us into community with God himself. There's another point here in this story too. Because when God brings the leper to Jesus in this divinely appointed moment, he doesn't just connect here with Christ, but Jesus sends him off to the priest. And that is such so that he can go through a ceremony with priests and now he's back into society. Jacob comes back to his family. He comes back to his kids. He comes back to all of the people of God. And this is what Christ does when he cleanses you. He makes it possible that you can have intimate relationships with others within the church, others in the family of God. Uh, Author Nancy DeMoss Wolgmoff said this recently. She said, For many years I have had a growing conviction that spiritual transformation and growth best take place in the context of community and intentional Christ-centered invasive relationships. Hear that word? Invasive relationships. We need each other. It's true regardless of our age, our marital status, or how long we may have known the Lord. God has designed us in such a way that we need healthy, intentional relationships to help us become all he intends us to be and to strengthen and equip us for every season of life. So the beauty of Christ here is that when he meets us, he cleanses us in such a profound way that we can now go deeply intentionally, even invasively in a good sense, into the lives of other hurting, imperfect believers who have also been cleansed. We're good enough to do that. Oftentimes we might think we're not cleansed enough to come close to somebody. They'll see our flaws, right? And we're scared of that. We don't want that. But the Bible teaches we have been cleansed enough. And so have they, such that we can move close to one another. I remember when I was in college, I was playing on a uh, slow-pitch softball team. And back then, man, I was 60 pounds lighter, and I couldn't, I was no slugger, right? I was a lightweight. I had what they call warning track power. If you don't play baseball, that's the 15 feet right before the fence. That's where all my balls would go when I hit it. I wasn't a good hitter, still in therapy about that. But I did play. I was in the game, right? And I remember, I was 19, and I was playing in an adult league, and a lot of these guys were bigger, stronger than me, and I had this little rinky-dink Walmart bat called the Fire Bat, right? It was not a good bat, but it was mine, and in that league, you brought your own bat, and you used it, and I remember another friend of mine on the team, his name was uh, Rusty. Rusty played college baseball. He was a star of our team. 
probably two out of every three of his hits were home runs. He was just, he was just great. He would always show up with a, a bag full of DeMarini bats. These things were $200 bats, each one of them. And, and he was just the stuff, man. And I remember one time uh, he was running late, right? And so our team was up to bat, and he got there so late that he basically uh, was coming from work. He didn't have his bat. And so he had to pretty much run up to the plate. And I was batting two people behind him. Should have been 10 people behind him. But two people behind him. And he ran up, and he actually grabbed my bat. He's like, can I use that? And he steps up to the plate. He's a big left-hander. And first pitch, man, he, he, the guy who picked his bag up and just cranked it over the right field fence like it was nothing. He began to trot around, and he ran around the face, uh, first baseline. He kind of pitched his bat back to me, pitched my bat, the one that he had just used. And he's like, son, that bat is fine. It ain't the bat. <laughs> he, kept, he kept going. <laughs> and I was humbled. Uh, but the rest of the year, I stepped up with the fire bat, and I thought, hey, good enough for Rusty, good enough for me. You're the bat in that story, okay? If you're good enough for God to cleanse, if God has cleansed you, you're good enough to come close to other people in the church. Don't let your baggage, don't let your past history, don't let your current struggles, your mess of all who you are, keep you from intimately approaching other women in the church, other men in the church. God has made opportunities right here for you to come close and be vulnerable because you have been cleansed and the other person has been cleansed so you can accept them. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be flawless. They have to be cleansed by God and they have been through Jesus Christ. And that's the glory of Jesus here in the story. Last night I met with my O2 group and it was just wonderful because you can sit with these people and you can, you don't have to be a certain way. I hope you have believers like that in the church where you can go to and you can just, hey, here's how my marriage is going. Here's the good, bad, and ugly, right? And you can be open and you can be honest. The cleansing of Jesus Christ allows you to have that intimate connection. I pray that you pursue that. Let's look at the last part of the story here. Chapter 5, where we see the forgiveness of sins. That's in verses 17 through 26. Again, a little backdrop is in order, a little context when you arrive to these New Testament stories. Um, uh, throughout the Old Testament, you see threads of hope pointing forward to a time when things are just going to be a lot better. Uh, one thread of hope is evil is going to be destroyed. Another thread of hope is unity with God is going to be renewed. Another is there will be a new exodus for God's people, but specifically here in Luke 5, the thread of hope that Luke and Christ are grabbing onto is the hope that one day forgiveness of sins will be completed. Forgiveness of your sins will be completed in Christ. If you remember the Old Testament story, it goes like this. God came and created people, but they rebelled. But even though they rebelled, God stayed true. He kept making forward-looking promises that he would one day rescue the people. And he pledged his love and his loyalty to people through commitments called covenants. And he walked with people. And he, but one problem still remained. Even though God was near, there was still this, this deal, this problem of being guilty of sins. Forgiveness of sins had to take place. The people were circumcised, but they needed to be soft and cut in their own hearts. The blood of bulls and of goats just wasn't satisfying the need to be 
forgiven that all men have as reflected in the Old Testament scriptures. That's why you see uh, in the book of Jeremiah, uh, the prophet looking forward, and he says, I'm looking forward to a time when uh, God will forgive the sin of the people and remember their sin no more. And Ezekiel also writes about looking forward to a time when God will uh, forgive all of the sins in a washing type of way. Forgiveness of sins, knowing that all of the Old Testament promises are going to become yes in a future figure of Christ. And now in Luke, we see that figure walking around and and doing his business. He is making forgiveness of sins happen as you see and you read through this story. So read with me in verse 17. I'm going to read down through 26. Notice the forgiveness of sins on display here. On one of those days, as he was teaching Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bad man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles and the mist before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, saying, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the man who was paralyzed and he says, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And immediately the man rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on. And he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God. And they were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things here today. And once again, it's good in these stories to just imagine that you were there. Put yourself inside the narrative. Imagine what it would have been like. Imagine you were there just a, a sometime after you had a firsthand screening of the leper being healed, and you actually uh, now find yourself in a house with Jesus in the city of Capernaum. The house is pretty normal, looking for the time. It has a, a a couple of wings, a main room and a wing off to the right where the animals are going to be stored, a sleeping section off to the left there. Uh, as you walk into the main room, you, you notice that the walls are uh, mud brick, um, got dirt on the floor. It's a dirt floor, but mats have been thrown down there. On top of the mats, there's a, a tiny, um, probably about six inches off the ground, a table, because in your society, everybody uh, eats on the ground, a table that's just barely raised. There's no chairs. Everybody lays down and they eat there. All that is pretty normal. You do notice that it's a pretty nice place because instead of the normal brick and sticks, uh, the sticks and mud on top, there's actually tile on the ceiling. So this is a nice looking place you find yourself in. Some even say that Jesus lives in this house, or at least he's staying here. And speaking of Jesus, there he is again. He's in the middle of the room. He's laying down. He's eating some bread already. He's leaning over and he's teaching. And you think, and when you look at him, you think, of all the miracles I've seen him do and I've heard about him, what remains central is his ability to teach about the kingdom, 
of God and the fact that he is the king. He's always talking about this. And again, he's talking in such a way that everyone is captivated. Everyone's listening, no matter what age or what status or what race you are. They're all catching Jesus. And you look around the room and it's filled up. It's very tight in there. There's a line outside the door and you look around to see who's here. And you see some middle class people. You know they're the uh, Pharisees. They're dressed a certain way. They're those Pharisees. You've seen them before, man. They're always about applying the Old Testament in just the right way, making sure we get it right. And one of them's actually beginning to start an argument over how the food is being prepared there. You're taking all of this in. You're listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden he stops, and he just pauses, and he looks heavenward. And most of the people kind of assume he's going to pray and so they, but, but you've seen Jesus before. You know he's always a step ahead of everybody, and something's going on. And so you look up there, and you watch, and all of a sudden you see dust begin to fall down. And, and then some little specks of pebbles begin to fall. And then all of a sudden a little chunk of a tile falls down. And now everybody's watching, and big whole ceiling tile crashes in the middle of the room. People jump back, and there's now a hole in the ceiling sun is coming through and you could hear a pin drop everybody's like what's up as you look up there you see one man's little face look into the room and then you see some hands and they begin ripping up more of the tile and you're thinking man the owner of this house is gonna be mad and they keep ripping and they keep ripping until there's a, a you know it's a five six feet hole up there and then you see another head this head's in a lot of pain Switch to the side. It comes through the hole and a body follows on a stretcher. A makeshift stretcher is being lowered through that hole and you know it slides through the hole and then it kind of hits the ground and everybody's like, what in the world? There's a paralyzed man on a stretcher now invading this teaching session, ruining this home. What in the world's going to happen next? And you kind of freeze and you see Jesus. Everybody takes their cue from Jesus. And he's just looking up at those guys who made the hole. And he's giving them a knowing, a knowing glance. And then he steps over to the man on the ground and he says, your sins are forgiven. And then you hear a murmur, a rush throughout all the crowd, especially in the section where the Pharisees are. They're looking around and saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. He can't do that. Can he do that? No, that's blasphemy. Can he do that? He can't get away with that, right? He can't forgive. Only God can do that. And you see Jesus kind of put his hand up like, hey, Quiet, everybody. I know what you're thinking here. You're thinking, is what I just did legit? Did I really just forgive someone's sins? Well, let me ask you a question, says Jesus, right in front of you. Says, which is harder, for me to say I forgive somebody's sin and have, have no way of backing that up, no way of proving that, or for me to actually heal someone? And now you're catching what he's throwing down, right? You understand that he's saying any old huckster could show up and say, your sins are forgiven, right? But only God can say that and then actually heal a man who's never walked before. If he could pull that off, Jesus, in this moment, it would authenticate his authority. It would prove that what he said is true. So now everybody's looking back and and they're watching and Jesus does move closer to the man. And uh, as he moves closer to look at him, his eyes scan over you. And they stop on your eyes just for a moment. And they pause. And in that pause, you feel that Jesus 
knows every single thought you've ever had, every single thing you have ever done. And you're at the same time terrified, but also overjoyed with peace. And then he quickly switches his glance down to the paralyzed man, and he looks at him, and he says, get up, pick up your bed, and go on home. Man jumps up. Man, got a pretty good vertical leap. He jumps up, scoops up the bed, and dances through the crowd all the way home, and everyone's amazed. And then the crowd pushes back in on Jesus, clamoring for more of the same. And what do we do, again, when we hear stories like that? We think about what was it like to be in that time? What are we to make of this? Well, there's a couple things. First, I wonder if you noticed when, you, when I read through things that the first story was only five verses long about the leper. The second story was double in size. It was ten verses. Why so much more ink being spilt on the second story? Well, it's because the second story has a theme present that the first didn't. It's more explicit in its telling. Both of them had a man being healed. Both of them in, involved creation being restored. But in the second story only was forgiveness of sins emphasized so clearly. Luke wants us to know, he wants to drive home the point that in order for creation to be restored, there must first be forgiveness of sins. Creation broke when Adam choked, and since then, it's been a mess. But if God forgives those sins, all can be restored. And we see that in Jesus. In fact, we learn as we read the Gospels that only Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. For he is the high priest himself, and he is actually the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, and he is actually the altar upon which the sacrifice is made. He is fully capable of dying for our sins. And when he dies, he offers himself up so that God can accept his perfect life as a payment for your sin. That's what Jesus means when he says, your sins are forgiven. He's looking forward to a time when he dies on the cross and his death covers backward all the sins of the paralytic and it covers forward all of the sins in your life if you have faith in Jesus and you repent. Now that concept isn't that intellectually challenged challenging. It's not that hard to understand. Even a child can understand that God sent his son to die in the place of sinners, and he bore the punishment, and that his death counted for us. And now our sins are forgiven because he was punished. That's not that challenging, but what's challenging is to actually trust that during the week, right? To trust that that's actually what's going on. In fact, Thomas Jefferson once famously said, he said, I believe some of what Jesus says, but I do have a point of departure. Here's what he says. that Jesus teaches that he in himself paid the price for all sins and it was done when he died, Jefferson said. Jefferson said, I don't work that way. For me, if forgiveness is going to happen, that person who made the fault, the person who's guilty, they have to earn it. They have to pay it back. That's the way forgiveness should work. And that's the way most of us kind of think. At least Jefferson was honest, right? We don't think of ourselves as being forgiven without having to work for it. Martin Luther famously said, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone 
is the hardest thing. Man, it's sweet. It's glorious when we are convinced of that, isn't it? Former president here at Southeastern Theological Seminary, Louis Drummond, once said it this way. He said, forgiveness transcends finite human reason. The mere thought of one's entire sin account can be utterly eradicated. It's staggering. Yet it's quite clear that the forgiveness of sin strikes at the very core of human need and experience. It speaks of guilt gone and remorse removed, depression disappearing, and emptiness of life eradicated. What power there is in forgiveness. And it all comes abundantly from the gracious hand of God through Jesus Christ. Here's an exercise for tonight. You go to bed tonight. When you lay down tonight, 10 o'clock, whatever time you go to bed, you're laying there. Look back on your day through the lens of forgiveness of sins and see what a difference that makes. Actually, recount your day as we often do when the head hits the pillow and look through the lens of forgiveness of sins. You feel guilty about your lack of performance at work? Or maybe you had to tell your kid a little lie today. Christ will forgive that sin. He's forgiven it in his death. You are covered. That sin is forgiven. Maybe you feel remorse over your three-year-old little tantrum queen, right? God can forgive her sin and forgive you of all the failures in your parenting. Maybe today flew by. You felt purposelessness. You felt like at the end of the day, you're just holding this mug of emptiness. When your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, He brings you into a family that includes a destiny that is forever good. He positions you in a glorious line that says that the world is yours if you will have it. He can give you purpose through the forgiveness of sins that He offers. Meditate on this tonight. It will give you much joy in Jesus. And there's one more point here in this text I want you to see. Because once again, when Luke is writing stories like this, he's not just telling a good story about Jesus, but there's something about the story that actually reflects something that's going to happen on the cross. You got that? When he's telling the story, Jesus is actually living out a drama that is a theological truth that spreads from his death and his resurrection. And what we see here, when Jesus comes to the paralytic, what we see here is that Christ when he comes on the cross, he actually jumps into and joins with us in our suffering. Don't miss that about the story. The paralytic could not stay on the roof. He had to come down. He wanted to be present with Jesus in his suffering, and Jesus didn't run away. Jesus met him right where he was in his suffering, in his trials, and God does that in the cross of Jesus. The cross says that God doesn't stay far off from our suffering. He comes down and he meets us. This week I was uh, at, the, at the gym with one of my kids and I was sitting there talking to a friend of mine. He's not a believer. He's a great guy though. And I just happened to say, how's your week? How's your day been going? And when I said, how's your day been going? His whole continence just slumped. He's like, man, it's not good. It's not good. I say, what, what's going on, man? Tell me what's What's going on? He said, well, man, today my, my wife had a, had a car accident. She, she's okay. Everybody's okay, but it was her fault. And that means financially it's going to cost something. And I was like, oh, man, I'm, 
sorry, sorry to hear that. And he said, yeah. And then, and then just, just uh, an hour before practice, I got a text. And the text said that my best friend from high school, 45 years old, he dropped dead today out in his yard. Healthy guy, had just heart failure, and it's crushing me. I'm overwhelmed by this, and it hurts, man. And in that moment, believe it or not, I didn't preach him a sermon, right? I was there with him. I tried to step in, tried to be sympathetic, empathetic, offered a shoulder, offered an ear. I wanted to be present with him in his suffering. And we see that in Jesus, both in the story and his cross work on the cross. Trevin Wax, another pastor, said it better. He said it like this. He says, in Jesus, we're not given the answer to the why question of pain and suffering. That's very important, right? When you see pain and suffering or you go through pain and suffering, often what dominates the canvas is the why question. You're asking why, how could, how could he, why, why, why? Trevin Wax says, in Jesus, you're not given the answer to the why question of pain and suffering, but in Jesus, we are given the resolution. There at the cross, in the midst of God's own grief and sorrow, we see God with us, and we believe that he is able somehow to take up our burdens upon himself and deliver us from our despair. He's not distant from our pain. He understands our suffering because Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, he suffered. The cry of your heart was once the cry of Jesus. Abba, Abba, he cried in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Let not my will be done, but yours. You see Jesus there in the garden? It's because of the cross that we know God is not absent from our suffering and our pain. Because of the cross that we can experience forgiveness and reconciliation and peace with God. As we witness the evil and experience the pain in this world, we too cry out, Abba, Abba. And God doesn't give us an explanation. He gives us himself. The cross is God's answer to our cry. It is through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus stepped into our suffering. Another writer, Gavin Ortland, puts it like this. He said, Christ is close to sufferers because he is the great sufferer. He is the ultimate Job, stricken by undeserved calamity. The ultimate Joseph, betrayed by his very brothers on the cross, Jesus took on our sins and absorbed the full sting of justice on our behalf, sinking down into the depths of hell and forsakenness. No one has ever suffered more. No one ever could. Such a depth of love can meet our need in the moment of pain. That's my call to you this morning. My call to you is to trust what the Bible says here. Go home. Take this text. Reread the stories. And call out to God and say, I know you know what it likes to suffer. I know you stepped into my pain. I don't understand this. I don't understand why this breakup is happening. I don't understand why I'm picked on at school. I don't understand why the money's not there. But I understand this. In the cross of Jesus, you can resolve the problem of pain and suffering by coming and being near to us and giving us the hope in the resurrection that one day all that is broken will be fixed. What a joy it will be this week if we can look back over what Luke has for us here in the text. 
see him heal the leper and know that we have been cleansed. We have community with God and community with others. What a joy to look back and see Jesus with a paralytic and see how he enters into suffering and that he will meet us there. You are not alone. Christ is with you. Let's pray. God, we do pray. Oh, we pray that you would come and show yourself to us. Do that for us, God. Reveal yourself in Jesus as the one present in our suffering. Oh, how we need it. We are hurting. We feel isolated and alone like the leper. We're paralyzed by fear or our own physical problems. We have stress. We have maladies. We have separation. We have divorce. We have in-laws that won't speak to us and we won't speak to them. We have past baggage piled up to the ceiling, God. We have loneliness. We bring it to you. We have desperation. We have cancer. But we have not lost hope because Christ has met us in our suffering. As you came to the paralytic, God, I pray that by faith, by faith, by faith, you will come to us. Heal us this week by your presence. Meet us here. God, I'm not asking you to explain all the whys of our suffering. I'll leave that to you, God. Give us the faith to know you are here with us today. And bolster our souls. Give us life in the depths of us may see Jesus and we may be cleansed where once there was defilement may we walk where once we were paralyzed God I ask for these things and more blessing in Jesus name